So I'll just say a few more words here and then we can have some discussion. So really crucial as we saw for being skillful with conflict and really what a meditative approach is add is how to be skillful with difficult emotions, thoughts, and body states, right? Crucial aspect, and it's related to what Troy broke, uh, brought up, how do we work with reactivity? Uh, your name again was? Elaine. Elaine, what Elaine brought up, working you know, with uh, different levels of intensity or part of what you brought up. And so having a bunch of tools to work with difficult states of body, heart, and mind is really crucial. I have a, I have a handout, which I'll give out in, you know, in a moment. Well, after, after this segment, we'll have walking. I'll give a handout, which summarizes some of what I, I've, I've talked about, some of what we did in the guided meditation. But this is like a crucial uh, part of our toolbox and one that we can uh, keep getting better at. To some extent, uh, we have to do this a lot. Uh, the, uh, sort of the meditative approach is based on really looking at the same material over and over again. This may not be pleasing. Some of you may say, oh, I thought I'd come for two days, resolve conflicts, move on. Right, but uh, my experience is that we have to look over things. We have to look at our experience over and over again Primarily because if we think of it from the level, at the level of the brain, we've gone down certain neural pathways that are habitual, like, you know, half a million, six million times, right? You don't work through those in a weekend, usually. Although you can have really significant shift. Okay. So we want to look at that and it can, it takes time, right? And I know that for me, one of the benefits of, unexpected benefits of doing retreats, like of a week or two weeks or longer, has been that, at least in my experience, often there's been like a theme of a retreat and it's permitted me to work with difficult material at times. I've often also had retreats which have just been more, folk, you know, more the positive comes through. That's the primary experience. But... You know, I had one one uh, retreat that I was I had experienced anger for about 16 hours a day for about 10 days in a row. Interestingly, it was in the workable range; it wasn't overwhelming. And I've never explored anger like that either before or after, but it was very, very revealing, right? And and that can happen in retreats. I had another retreat where I explored explored fear. A lot, not not at that uh, length, but it was there, you know, many hours a day for you know a week straight. But it, again, it was luckily in the workable range. Another retreat where I explored the judgmental mind over and over and over again. And so, uh, this is partly how our practice works. But we can so keep doing it again. It's and and we do it with the small stuff as well as the big stuff. So. Uh, this, I think, is actually one of the places where uh, our mindfulness practice, our heart practices, can really have big shifts. And, and this is also uh, what permits us to, in the moment, uh, be able to respond wisely. Like if we've looked, if I've looked at anger a lot of times, and then and I'm in an interaction and the same stuff goes up, comes up, I say, oh, this is familiar. Right? 
I know what's happening. Oh, looks like I'm going there. I know that pattern, right? So we want to get really familiar with our patterns. And we do this by both mindfulness in our meditation sessions and by uh, trying to be mindful as much as we can in the moment. And there's also quite a value from reviewing what's happened maybe earlier in the day or yesterday or kind of in the spirit of how we did that guided practice. Can I get kind of settled and bring up a difficult experience and explore it? What actually, you know, what was that about, (laughs) right? And I can explore that and have some insight. So mindfulness after the fact is not a, is a good practice. You know, we don't usually teach that, but you know, we usually say present moment. But this is mindfulness of what happened in the past, <laughs> but bringing it up as if it's present that can be very valuable too. So generally, I think the guidance for being with difficult emotions or thoughts or body states, I think, is. Uh, sort of threefold, the internal practice. First of all, know what's happening. This is where our mindfulness comes in. So number one, know what's going on. Not easy, right? You know, but something you can do is if we, this is why daily mindfulness practice is so crucial, but you can bring mindfulness into other situations. I've sometimes gone to meetings and had a running mindfulness log you know, like where I would just write, you know, content, mind calm, body calm, meeting going well. And then three hours later, tired. Sarcastic thoughts developing in mind. Right? So, but the mindfulness, then I would write that down, the mindfulness makes it way less likely that I'll express those sarcastic thoughts, right? So we can bring them the mindfulness into situations. So a lot of it is about remembering to be mindful. So that, that's the hardest thing. We, we often say, many of you probably heard this, it's not hard to be mindful. It's hard to remember to be mindful. Right? That's hard. Right? So we need all these reminders. You know, again, that's a, could talk, maybe we'll talk at length about that a little later. So number one, know what's happening. Number two, assess the level of intensity. Related to what we were talking about earlier, assess the level of intensity. You can use the sort of the Olympic divers one to ten scale, and know what for you is beyond being workable, where it's too much. In that case, it's going back to the earlier discussion. In that case, we want to do what we can to come back to balance, and that would be a good time to take a pause, time out, disengage could be to take a walk if it's over you know, a day or two, uh, talk with a friend. What helps you to bring the intensity level down in your, in your you know, the kind of the distress level? We want to bring it down to where it's workable. So there are a lot of things we could do. The tools that we did at the end of the um, guided practice, orienting, uh, grounding, pendulation, are very helpful where the, especially the body and the nervous system gets activated for various reasons. That could be where there's some, uh, you know, there's some real uh, kind of triggering, maybe something, one of our deeper patterns, or if we have any history of trauma, that can uh, get activated. So first step, know what's happening. Second is assess 
the level of intensity and if you're out of balance where it's not workable, do what you can to bring it back to being workable. It may not go away, but it's still workable. And then the third step is to, when it's in the workable range, explore with mindfulness. And we do this over and over again. Explore with mindfulness. Uh, and we can do that again in a few different ways. We can, uh, just knowing what's there as part of mindfulness, exploring like we did, especially body, what's it like in the body, what's it like in the emotional energy, what's it like in the thinking. Really, really uh, crucial. Okay, and then, uh, so those are, those are three real steps for working with difficult or challenging emotions. And I'll, I'll just say uh, a fourth you know, then, then we also, I didn't really, uh, I think in the handout it's there, but a fourth step would be responding in some way, which, which brings in a lot of the other tools we're looking at on the weekend. So know what's happening, assess the level of intensity and whether you're balanced and, and it's workable. Uh, if it's not, do what you need to do to make, come bring yourself back to balance. Third, uh, explore explore the situation. Again, this is more when you're not in an actual interaction. So explore. Uh, but even if you can, uh, if, you, if you can explore something, you know, take, even take a little bit of a time out. You know, I got triggered, I'm in distress, I'm sort of really angry at what just happened at the meeting. Take a little time out, explore it. You know, that will be of great benefit. Okay? And let me bring in one other tool which is, uh, I think, the one that we have in the handout that we gave out. The uh, that has the ladder that's called working the ladder. Let me just bring introduce this briefly. This is a further perspective, particularly on how our thinking occurs. Okay, everyone have the handout. Okay. How many people need the handout still? Okay. So this is a model that uh, I was introduced to by my colleague Lawrence Ellis. Uh, He's an organizational consultant, also a Dharma teacher and uh, in the East Bay, and we taught together for a number of years, and he introduced this model to me, which I've used myself quite a lot. Uh, This is a model which comes out of the uh, sort of organizational development field, but uh, developed by a man named Chris Argerus. Anyone know Chris Argerus' work? He was uh, at, for a lot of years, I think he died 2013, but he was really a major author, and on the faculty of Harvard Business School. And uh, he developed this model, uh, not so much with conflict in mind, but with an interest in understanding different levels of thinking. Okay? And so, uh, but I, I've, uh, Lawrence found it really helpful for working with conflicts, and I have too. Basically, the idea is that when we're in a conflictual situation, we go what we could call up the ladder to narratives stories and positions. But let me explain the model first. Okay, and then we'll, get, we'll do an example. So basically this is saying that there's, in general, an almost infinite pool 
of available data or observations, right? Uh, at this very moment, every one of you is attentively just listening to my words. Right? You could be, your mind could be going other places. You could be really interested in your neighbor's socks and you know, maybe occasionally hearing my words, but really saying, when am I, maybe during the walking meditation, I'll ask my neighbor where the socks were bought or something, okay? It could be. Or you might be thinking about something that happened yesterday, or you might be thinking about a question you had, or might be thinking about, uh, you know, um, I'm hungry, maybe I should just have a snack during the walking meditation. Would that be okay? I think so. So, right, we know this is what the mind does, right? It goes in all sorts of directions. So, and you could go in the past, you could go infinitely in the past, you could imagine stuff in the future. So in a sense, there's almost like an infinite field of potential observable data at this moment. Out of that pool, we select out for attention just a few things to pay attention to. I, I forget the statistics. They've done, you know, you know, analyses of, of the amount of information that's in the general cognizance of the brain. It's like, you know, it's like, I don't know, every moment, like 10,000 pieces of information are there and we select out like six or eight, something like that, right? Which is a lot. It sounds like a lot, but, but you know, it could, but that's, that's how the brains work. So at the level of awareness, we select out a few things. Of course, in our situation, you're just totally attending to my words maybe a little bit to my gestures and so forth, okay? Um, and so that we select out the data and maybe at certain times we add meanings to what we've seen and maybe I say something and you think, oh, that's really important, I should remember that, let me make a note of that. So something seems to strike you, it's meaningful. And then we can go further up, we can go up the ladder, uh, so to speak, we make assumptions. I'm going to be mindful of distressing emotions for the rest of my life. I'll do it. Sign me up, right? Uh, that would, you know, and I'm not going to distinguish so much on the model between assumptions and conclusions, but we might go there, and we might even accept beliefs. And you know, this is so important. I'm going to call myself a Buddhist, <laughs> or whatever, you know, or. Uh, and then we take actions based on the beliefs. And what's not on the model is, is I think, something that you brought up. Uh, remind me of your name? Tim. Tim, that Tim brought up, which is that there's actually a feedback loop from the beliefs and so forth down to how we select the data, right? How I select the data is going to be influenced by my beliefs, right? So that's the essence of the model. It's a model just of how the mind works in an ordinary way. Is that... Any questions about it? Pretty simple. We might make tweaks here and there, but I mostly use it to really point to uh, the way the mind works. And of course, what we do a lot in meditation is we learn to come down the ladder and really we learn to come to more direct experience and not spend our time so much up in interpretations, beliefs, thinking, and so forth. So we could say that we actually come down the ladder to more direct experience, emotions, noticing thoughts, the body. And we also can become very aware of when we proliferate thoughts 
That's what shooting the second arrow is about. Shoot the first arrow, I have something unpleasant. It often might even be something physical. And then I proliferate thoughts, like I blame someone, I blame myself. That would be, in my language, going up the ladder. Okay? So a lot of what we learn in meditation is, number one, how to be down at the lower part of the ladder with direct experience, more direct experience. And secondly, when we do go up the ladder, to know that that's happening. Now, going up the ladder isn't necessarily a problem. It's a normal part of how the mind works. And it's valuable to make interpretations, reach conclusions, and so forth. What we bring in with mindfulness, it's really helpful to know that we're doing that. And now, when we turn to conflict, that the reason why that's important becomes obvious. That uh, what conflicts tend to do is they tend to shoot us up the ladder. Right? That we... We uh, have something unpleasant happen and we may search for an interpretation, often that come very quickly, that makes some sense of why what's happening is happening, right? And so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll tell one story and, and we'll do a little bit of an exercise together to bring this out. Uh, so uh, my colleague Sylvia Borstein, who's actually teaching this weekend, they have a retreat. I don't know if anyone, I talked with her this morning. Anyone see her? She's around, and we, we, we teach uh, the Wednesday mornings and have taught, the, taught a lot together. Sylvia was telling the story of um, wanting to do a retreat at the Zen Center in San Francisco. And she called them up, and she reached the person at the Zen Center, and the person at the Zen Center said, oh, uh, you need to talk to Steve about uh, arranging a retreat, but Steve's not around now. Call back at three o'clock this afternoon. Sylvia said, okay. So Sylvia called back at three o'clock uh, that day, reached the same person. She said, oh, Steve just walked out. Try tomorrow morning. Okay. Sylvia said, okay. She called uh, the next morning and uh, reached the same person uh, and said, could I talk to Steve? And the person said, uh, oh, you know, Steve's caught in bad traffic. At which point Sylvia said, I guess that means I'm not supposed to do the retreat. So that's going up the ladder, right? Something unpleasant, she's driven to, given, I guess that means I sh- I'm not supposed to do the retreat. Uh, and the... the um, person at the, you know, handling the telephone at the Zen Center in really disciplined meditative Zen style said, no, I think it means that Steve's not here. (laughs) Right? So she brought Sylvia, I think she did the retreat. (laughs) So uh, she brought Sylvia down the ladder. Do you see how we, sometimes in moments of distress, we go up the ladder to interpretations, to narratives. Maybe one other example that can bring that out. Um, Okay. Uh, I'm part of a a group, uh, you know, maybe at work, and we have a meeting for 9 a.m. You know, everyone is there but one person. Okay? And... uh, uh, I, depending on my, um, how my mind works, may have different thoughts about why that person isn't there. 
how might I go up the ladder to uh, interpretations, evaluations, and so forth? What would be an example of doing that? That person, you know, if we were being a little bit reactive and judgmental, that person doesn't respect us. Or what would be some other ways of saying something like that? Yeah. They don't respect the job. They don't care about the job. Not a team player. <laughs> right? Do you see how with conflicts or difficulties we would tend often to go up? This is really a version of the second arrow, isn't it? Right? What would be another example? That person is disorganized, un- incompetent. Maybe we'd remember, oh, this, hap- this has happened, uh, by my count, 13 previous times. <laughs> right? And so that would be an example of going up the ladder. Now, uh, we could, you know, so we could go up the ladder uh, non-reactively. What would be an example of someone going up the ladder maybe more compassionately? Maybe they're caught in traffic. Yeah. We might say maybe caught in traffic or... Maybe Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you could actually go up the ladder non-reactively. Right. Yeah, a person has a really hard time with time. Yeah, and um, I think we'll have a discussion. But I'm going to try to be compassionate. You know, could could do that. Right. Right. We could. We that would be going almost to conclusions. Maybe this is too hard for this person, and maybe for the sake of the team. Maybe we have a team of three people. Maybe let's do it at a time which really works for this person. So see, we could. We could go up the ladder. What we're interested in is especially seeing how we reactively go up the ladder and really noticing it. And it's something you can work with. I like the image of the ladder because you can, you can go to a party and watch people going up the ladder. <laughs> or you could, you, know, uh, you could just be actually with a large number of conversations. And again, it's not so much to be reactive. You're going up the ladder. <laughs> you go up the ladder so many times. <laughs> Right, which of course is going up the ladder about going up the ladder. Right, so again, humor helpful. <laughs> so, but uh, but but something we I I wanted to give this model because I find it helpful. It, it's like the image. You know, some of us work well with images, and it can really it's something to notice in our own minds and in other people how when there's some difficulty, we often go up the ladder to interpretations. Yeah. Yeah. About other people. Yeah. But if you go up the ladder and you're aware of it. Yeah. It's kind of an example of how when people do Yeah, yeah. And and to so a few things what you said and maybe um uh Katie if we have any more comments let's do the use the mic. Um but yeah, we could. We the main thing is to notice when we're going up the ladder, whether we're doing it reactively or whether we're doing it for reasons that could be constructive. Right? It's really to be cognizant. Thanks, thanks, uh, and uh, to know that. And sometimes it's skillful, right? Sometimes it's skillful to go to interpretations. To some extent, when we are uh, using the both end model, and we'll cover this more. Um, after walking meditation, 
we actually make, we make guesses about what people's needs are. Remember some of the examples from yesterday? You know, I want to go out, uh, I want to go out uh, to eat. My partner wants to stay home, right? And we can make, we make an assessment, you know, some of it can be done more directly empathically, but to some extent there can be some interpretation. What are, what's my partner's need right here? And so it's helpful to know that we're doing that, and it's especially helpful to know when we go up the ladder reactively. Right? So any other questions or comments about this whole segment about being with challenging or difficult states of mind and body and heart? from the uh, guided practice where, you know, to be mind, how to be mindful, you know, in the moment of the difficult experience. Again, it, it helps to train with the ones which are not too, too hard. Uh, yeah. So we have a few in, in this, on this side. So this is just a really minor comment, but in this model, there's an arrow that's going up and then there's an arrow going down the ladder. I'm just I'm curious what the arrow going down the ladder. I think that's mean. coming from the uh, I take actions based on my beliefs. I, that's my interpretation of of that. We could also the the other way we go down is I said not in this model. It's in some versions of this model that there's a kind of a feedback loop between the sort of the upper parts of the ladder, the beliefs and so forth. Uh, um, and how we select data. The other, yeah. like my immediate reaction to this is that there's a cognitive behavior model where people have thoughts that lead to certain emotions that lead to certain actions. So, so, it, so in the cognitive behavior model, people have certain thoughts that lead to emotions that lead to certain actions. And that's what's sort of interesting to me in this oh, yeah. model, that there's yeah. no mention of emotions at all. Yeah, yeah, that's... that's um that's a good point. That um, this this is a model. All models uh, are simplifi- simplifications. One of my teachers a long time ago said, "All theories leak," <laughs> which is helpful to know. But I think you're right that in some ways this could be kind of a complex. That our belief, you know, some of our beliefs, particularly the ones that might be connected with unresolved pain are going to be complexes of thoughts and emotions, right? And, you know, if I... We look at this when I teach a lot on the judgmental mind, that if I have a, something from my childhood that, uh, I don't know, my needs won't be met, right? has a cognitive component. It's also tied to a lot of emotions, right? Or I'm not okay, right? So I think you're right that, uh, you know, if we were to really fill this out, we would, we would indicate a lot of little feedback loops, with thoughts and emotions, and sometimes they come just as whole complexes, and they would they would also influence how I select data. If I'm uh, what if I'm uh, anxious, my mind goes to potential danger signs, right? Uh, so I think we we all know how that works. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I think we had one other person in front, and then we'll go to you. We came in, and maybe yeah. I, I this was, was Elaine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, closer during, yeah. during the meditation, um, uh, when the focus, bringing the focus to the emotional sensation of um, when we were doing the exercise of thinking about the, the c- conflict, 
um, and this happens to me in other situations where um, sometimes I just completely, there's a complete disconnection, and I can't, I almost can't access it. Yeah. It kind of goes away. Yeah. It kind of disappears, even though it was very present, and I jump into my head a lot. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think that's just a practice. Of that's, a, that's a question of continuing to practice, yeah. How many people can relate to that, that? Especially with something distressing, we may be a little bit with the emotion where we go to the narrative a lot, right? How many can relate to that? And that would be an example of going up the ladder. That's why with the practice we try to, uh, I mean, we want to pay attention to the narrative, but getting caught in the narrative is not being mindful of the narrative. It's hard to connect. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the capacity to really be with the emotions and the body is one of the fruits of practice. So, and the kind of the the standard guidance of meditation teachers. This is for which we have four to six year trainings. We basically say, keep on practicing. This is what four to six year trainings lead to. Comments like that. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, so, so, but there's truth to that. That the um, conditioning around being habitually caught in thoughts is so strong, particularly in this culture, that we we really need to train continually. Practice. For a lot of us, the body is a very good um, doorway into the emotion. So. Whatever, uh, I think when I was first meditating, it was the awareness of the body, which I, which was hardly there for me. Even though I was like a competitive athlete, I was a prof- not professional, but I was a competitive swimmer. You know, like for ten years, right? A lot of body stuff, hiking, all sorts of physical activities. Not very aware of my body, nonetheless, right? And so, body awareness was like a doorway, and. For me personally, it was you know getting more ground in the body started then to open up the emotions. It didn't go the opposite direction for me, you know. So uh, that could be something to emphasize, you know, with walking meditation and sometimes just being with the body and grounding in the body, and also um, from a meditative point of view, developing more concentration is very significant for just staying with the emotion. Some of it is the mind goes just to thinking sometimes because the level of concentration is, is, is lower. So all of this is to say keep on training with concentration, with the mindfulness, grounding in the body. And at a certain point it can become more accessible. Yeah, yeah thanks. Okay. Uh, did you want to have a democratic process? <laughs> How many people are okay with uh, closing the windows a little bit? Okay. Uh, okay. So see, we're doing we're doing our process. So th- again, there's see a lot of complexities. If we were doing a six-week version of this, we would look into we would look into patterns of decision making. Okay. But I think we're here. We're trying to.
So here, and this, this is a good example because we're trying to meet different needs. We're trying to meet different needs and it's almost, you know, it's almost like we, and we have different levels of sensitivity, right? So it's almost like you could call that it's the equivalent of the cultural differences or the con- differences in conditioning. So how do we do that? So here, uh, if we... If we wanted to do something really complex, I, I did a workshop uh, about about uh, a month and a half ago with a guy who had named David Kempf, who developed a really beautiful system where he had a way of giving everyone just a little a little uh, like device, like just a, no bigger than my hand, which has a button and uh, a little bit of a screen, and he could program this so that you have like three choices. And he had a screen up front and everyone could uh, signal one of three choices and instantaneously up front you would have the breakdown for the whole group. It's a pretty interesting technology and hopefully might be, you know, get very widespread. It's a very interesting way to make decisions, right? And to have assessment of needs of the group really quickly and very accurately. Pretty interesting. Maybe I don't know where he got it from. <laughs> okay, um, please, yeah. And so let's say your name again, uh, David. David. Yeah. David. Uh, so I had a question about how much you you might feel that sitting practice is essential to not getting caught in the ladder quite as much, or because yeah. um, I I'm I feel like mindfulness I carry that with me a good por- portion of the day, but yeah. I haven't been too disciplined with sitting practice. Yeah. And I just wonder. Yeah, really how strongly recommended. I mean, there there are a certain small percentage of people who can be mindful without sitting practice, but most people that I know, it really makes a difference. And so, a regular sitting practice, and then also what can really be tremendously helpful are finding little five or ten minute periods during the day when you cultivate mindfulness in ways that don't add any more time to your schedule. Like maybe you, uh, like, you know, I'll just give some examples. One person who I work with uh, goes on public transportation about 40 minutes every day, each way. That's, uh, in addition to his formal meditation, he is mindful on the public transportation, right? Or small thing that I do, I do a knee exercise where I'm basically just putting some pressure. And I do it in the mornings, like for 10 minutes, I make that a mindfulness period. The key is it doesn't add anything to your day. So it's not another thing on your to-do list, but it's something that you can just transfer. Some people would be walking uh, from where you park five minutes to your office, something like that, or the equivalent. And so that would be a key. So yeah, the, the answer is that a lot of what we're talking about, especially this, the seg- this current segment, is crucial. Uh, you need to have mindfulness, and the the culture we live in is so has us up the ladder most of the time. You know, we could say that, you know, up the ladder means being in a virtual reality, or you know, so forth. So, coming down to the body and knowing the experience, we need practice. Yeah. So, I would I would say yes. Sitting practice, yeah. Sitting practice and then these other ways of having it be alive during the day. The best thing is to have maybe, you know, if you can, uh, you know, 
20, 30 minute period in the morning. It's going to vary according to people's schedules and styles and so forth. Maybe a little bit in the evening. And then if you can find one or two times during the day when you're, which, you know, you're already doing things, but you just say, I'll be mindful. Like when I was first a meditator, I was a student. I was living in Boston and I didn't have a car, did a lot of public transportation, walked a lot. And uh, I was initially frustrated that I didn't have more time for meditation. And I said, let me have all my walking and being on public transportation be like walking meditation, meditation. And all of a sudden I had, you know, another hour or two a day. So, but it didn't, you know, add anything to my schedule. It just saved me from whatever I was thinking of when I was walking. <laughs> right, so, thanks. Okay, maybe uh, just last one. Last two, and then we'll we'll go into walking. We're giving you a little workout. So this just reflects my ignorance, but can you just describe in detail? So when you talk about like the exercise in your knee or just being on the bus and that being a meditation experience, what are you actively doing different? Good question. Yeah, yeah. So... um, I think for me, with my knee exercise, I do, I do exactly what I would do in a formal meditation where I wasn't doing anything. In other words, there's very little that needs my awareness with my knee, but I'm just kind of sitting there and I can devote my attention to whatever, being with the breath or whatever the practice is I'm doing. And I think it's the same thing with uh, you know, my student on the bus or on the on the public transportation, uh, there could be you know any number of practices. You could be closing your eyes and doing you know just being with the breath, doing mindfulness practice. Could be doing loving kindness practice, a heart practice. That that doesn't matter. But the key is to so it just be doing whatever you do otherwise. Yeah. So we have one more. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, thank you. Sorry. Um, I'm thinking about the techniques for when you're overreacted, overreactive and working with challenging emotions. And we talked a little bit about this yesterday, but thinking about being in relationship with someone else who is... Yeah very overly reactive and how to maybe this is easier if I speak through example. So um, my mom is like fourth generation New York Jew. So like just culturally super loud, reactive, talks over people. That's my whole family. And I'm very, very different. (laughs) Um, California, laid back, meditative. Exactly. (laughs) And so every time she, in my opinion, is, yelling at me um she'll say you're just so california i'm expressing my emotions you're not letting me express myself and for me her over activation overactivates me but i i have such a hard time letting her know because she's so in my opinion defensive and just says that she's expressing her emotions she's not overly reactive and i'm wondering if you have any guidance on working with someone like that and maybe it's just for myself to Mm -hmm 
know my scale where I'm at from one to 10 and draw my own boundaries. But yeah. 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 Um, I think it's helpful to break it down into different components. And, um, you know, one, one very simple model that I came to just in doing a lot with speech practice is that in any uh, interaction between two people, the optimal is I do my inner practice, the other person does his or her their inner practice, and then we do relational, collaborative practice together. That's optimal, right? And in many situations, only one of the three is possible. Guess which one? Right. Okay. Right. And so, um, in any situation, you can do your inner work. It's a little bit like the other question about, uh, I guess it was with uh, in the back about uh, meeting one's own needs, right? Um, that... Uh, you can do a lot of deep inner practice, uh, both being with uh, what's evoked in you, and not at all to say that this is complete. But it's, sometimes that's the major thing that you can do. You can do a combination of your own inner practice, being with your own states, knowing how you get activated, studying that, studying the reactivity, studying how you go up the ladder, um, uh, Maybe doing other positive practices, compassion, forgiveness. You could do empathy practice that try to tune into your mom's, where she's coming from and needs. And that can all be done without necessarily interacting with her. And so I think it's helpful to separate that out as one part of training. And then maybe we'll, can we reserve the other parts? The other parts would be how do you speak? What are some skillful ways of speaking and interacting? Uh, and um, it's almost like you're going across, uh, going between two cultures almost, right? Yeah, that's what makes it so challenging. Yeah, yeah. We can reserve that. Can we come back to that? So for here, the here we're focusing on more the inner practices, right? Which is a like a crucial component. And the the model for the weekend is of connecting inner practices with more outer practices, right? So... Uh, and that's why we bring in models like this, which are uh, can give you an analytic framework for looking at the relationship. And then we would w- also tune in to the uh, tune in maybe to the the deeper needs of your mom, and that that can be very helpful. That would more come through empathy. And then you know maybe 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 we can do a role play in the afternoon where you can be your mom and I can be you. Yes, I love that. <laughs> Okay, that's the, I, I love the, the, you know, where you, cause that would be interesting for you to be your mom, right? That would be really healing, actually. <laughs> okay. Okay, so maybe, yeah, so see if you want to do that. Maybe we can work up to that. Okay. Okay. Um, great. So, so very rich. And you can see that, uh, again, uh, we're, I'm trying to give, we're trying to give, like, essentials in these two days, but uh, this is why... I know, uh, especially if you're interested in the speech practice, consider that uh, you know, we're, my colleague Oren Sofer and I were doing this, uh, um, I think it's six-day non-residential retreat in Berkeley in August on speech practice, which, uh, um, did you do that, Katie? I'm doing it this oh, you were doing it this, this August, yeah. Um, I think, has anyone done that here? Okay. 
you did it, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like, I think it's nine to five for six straight days. So. It's, it's a pretty standalone. I sometimes, when we have time, I bring in some elements of conflict, but it's pretty standalone, and it's more, it's really focused especially on speech practice. But like I said, we work with the foundations the first two-thirds of the retreat, the first four days. We just, it's like, you know, this is, again, the principle of training. We practice in safe situations, get the capacity stronger, and then we bring them to difficulties, right? And so then the last two days, we do a lot of, uh, a lot of work in various ways to uh, work skillfully with difficult interactions. So, you know, we have one practice, which I love a lot, where we, uh, we imagine a situation that triggers us. And what we do, we do an exercise where we, uh, we uh, have a half a sheet of paper and you write out on one side the triggering comment. And then you have other people see it and say it to you. And you get to you get to uh, see how you would respond. You know, again, we 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 urge people to do you know with that kind of practice something in the middle, not not the nines or tens, right? But we uh, but that'd be an example. Like we, it's it's I I like that. I have a lot of fun with that. So we you know you go you, you go around. We circulate in the group, and you go one after another. You have you know you may have three or four people trigger you in the same way with that comment and you get to see what's a skillful response. You know, that's interesting. It's a nice way to train. Yeah. Okay. So, um, we're going to go back into silence for a bit. Let's do a uh, walking meditation and, uh, also time to use the bathrooms if you need to. We'll come back, uh, we'll come back at noon. Okay. And so we'll ring the bell. Let's ring the bell with six or seven minutes to go. Okay. And also, if anyone, you know, if any, I, I'll be up here for a bit. If anyone has a personal question you want to just check in with, or anything that didn't have time during the discussion time.